Hello, members of the BungaCast Reading Club. Welcome back. This is the third section of the 2022 Reading Club, and we're moving on to a new subject, which is neo-feudalism or techno-feudalism, if you prefer. George is going to talk us through what that's all about and what's coming up, as well as talking us through this specific episode. But before we do any of that, I'm going to say hello to George and hello to Phil. Hey, hi. How are you doing? You're in the uh, socialist paradise of Brazil mm, this afternoon. Yeah. What's it like mm. to live under so uh, to live under a workers' party? What's socialism like, Alex? Tell uh, us. I don't know because I haven't left the house in three days because I've been so busy. So oh, uh, I'll let you know again? once I go out. There was no lockdown. I thought here. you were like I thought you were like partying. There was a there was a state level lockdown in Sao Paulo, wasn't there? No, not not a lockdown. They they you know, some businesses were closed, but you weren't prevented from going out and about. Um, no, I was out on I was out on Sunday night celebrating on Avenida Paulista. I was maybe a hundred thousand people out there. It was fantastic, um, but big relief. And I think we uh, we can uh, allow ourselves some celebration, even if we know that uh, there's a lot of bad stuff on the way. Um, you you can have a beer and a barbecue as a little treat before you get back to uh, exactly. serious political work. Exactly. Um, but since then, I haven't left the house because I've been very busy. Um, so I'll let you know once I actually get out there. I think it's healthy to like go and get some exercise. I mean, even in lockdown, we were allowed out for an hour, like a day. Yeah, we were never stopped from going out anywhere or meeting I know up I'm with saying people. in the UK, but I'm saying, you know, you should like get out of the house, Alex. It's I, good I, for I, you. I, I will once I've finished my very, very long to-do list. Um, anyway, uh, we're gonna turn to your questions from the very last episode of the last section um of the reading club, which uh concerned the question of conspiracy theories. There's a lot of engagement on this one, unsurprisingly. Um, it's a very hot topic, obviously. And um I think we tried to provide a, a, a kind of way through this, and I think you, people seem to have appreciated that. So um, that's always nice to hear. Let's take these in a row. So the first comment from Eli, uh, he says, conspiracy theory typically seems to function as a way of rendering events explicable within a worldview someone doesn't want to change. That also means that conspiracy theories can function as a way to assign apparent agency to simple facts. This takes on a contradictory angle when the ruling class legitimate themselves as technocrats and legitimates capitalism as a simple fact, such as, for example, capitalism has existed for 6,000 years. This is a case where denaturalizing the apparent fact is entirely rational, but generalizing this willingness leads to being a bit, uh, a little bit irrational, for example, by claiming that war global warming is fake. Um, I, I struggled a little bit to parse this. Um, Phil, you um, got what it was getting at? Uh, yeah, I don't want to claim I don't want to claim the role of being the Eli whisperer, but what I think um, what I think Eli is getting at is the idea that conspiracy theory allows you to not have to accept things as they are, um, which is you know or the kind of the adamantine character I suppose of um, of late capitalist life, and so it gives you the sense you know it kind of points to the fact that things are social constructions i suppose if you want to use that kind of phrase and this is what it's um you know this is what makes it kind of gives it a certain appeal um but nonetheless it still has that it's still particularly when taken to the extreme of imagining that everything is simply um willed and that the that is uh, fully within the um scope and power of existing elites Obviously, it's irrational. 
Right. Yeah. No. So this is like basically taking the claim onto an epistemological level, for example. So you you know you disagree with the politics of lockdown, so that so you end up claiming actually COVID, um, you know, wasn't a disease at all and it was made up or something like that. Yeah. That sort of like that. Yeah. 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 I think I think we made this this point that conspiracy theories do tend to be disempowering. They do tend to kind of lead people away from action, um, which actually I think is a often a kind of underappreciated. Uh, consequence i think it's almost like the, the the general model of conspiracy theory is that it it gets everybody all worked up and then they end up um doing xyz but actually most of the time it is i think as eli does say it does it's a worldview that um people don't don't want to have to change anything because the forces are, are too great to um to do anything about yeah yeah um and next question from Richard Roberts, uh, the cuckold piece. I think this was my um, reference to King of the Hill. And I actually meant to include a clip of that in the end, but I, I didn't get around to it. Um, and Lacan as well. And it? Lacan, yeah. Um, but I wasn't going to include a clip of Lacan speaking, I think. Anyway, um, but basically, yeah. yeah it was, it, the, the main idea is Lacan. The illustration was uh, King of the Hill, um, where the character is um, being cheated on repeatedly, consistently um, um, by his wife. Um, and then when all the evidence is presented to him, he find he concocts a conspiracy theory to explain something else that was happening to his not stare the thing that is actually going on square in the face anyway so richard roberts uh, appreciated that uh, it reflects a sentiment that one can find virtually everywhere it seems that the quote-unquote real action is happening somewhere else and you aren't a part of it and that seems to apply whether the cuckold or worker or voter or media consumer is theorizing conspiracy or not. In fact, accepting that you're just a cuck doesn't necessarily lead to political action. It's often just depressive, um, which I guess is on the lines of what you were just saying. I love, George. I just, I love, I just love the fact that gets even <laughs> read out. It's great. <laughs> so it, it made me think about kind of political FOMO that like, there is some like real basis for feeling like the action is happening somewhere else because you know the less impactful political participation is the more you think oh <clears throat> something's got to be happening elsewhere so you go through your life with perennial whole 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 fomo or something like that anyway whole fomo <laughs> whole fomo yeah like political fear of missing out are you feeling are you feeling political fomo now because of brazil um george yeah maybe that was maybe your this jealous, is it. that was your jealous question of the start yeah, maybe it's a projection, and I'm like, I wish I was where the the action is. I wish I could be wearing my my Liverpool shirt and have pictures taken of me eating <laughs> what looks like a delicious barbecue and having a beer. I mean, when's that going to happen uh, after a general election in this country? Right. Um, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of engagement, lots of people out on the streets, everyone wearing stickers of one side or the other. So you know, that's I wouldn't that's wear politics, a baby. Well, yeah, no sticker, but but I would wear a would wear a shirt. Good. You'd wear a shirt. Um, right. Uh, one final comment regarding this conspiracy theory episode from Ran Heilbrunn. Um, he argues that today's conspiracy discourse is fundamentally different to what Melly describes. Melly emphasizes the defensiveness of conspiratorial thinking, the way it offers an odd sort of comfort in an uncertain age. Because conspiracies for him are a desperate attempt to resist the death of the autonomous subject, he associates the conspiratorial mindset with feelings of melancholy and disempowerment. This didn't actually age well. If we take the American rights conspiracy culture as an example, the very contemporary one, it seems that today's conspiracies have a totally different function. They're a bit more they're bit they are more libidinal than melancholic, more offensive than defensive, more stimulating than comforting, more playful than panicky. 
In We're Still Here, Jennifer Silva's 2019 book on the Pennsylvania working class, uh, we uh, George actually interviewed her um, back then. There's an episode uh, you can listen to, listener. Uh, she reports that the only time I heard passion and excitement in discussions of politics was on the topic of government conspiracies. Betrayed by institutions, detached from political and religious organizations, and distrustful by government, young working class adults briefly lit up, their faces flushed, words flowing quickly, when they proved to me that they could not be fooled by the illusion of democracy. In Silva's account, conspiracy culture appears not as a product of political disengagement, but a response to it. Conspiracy theories do not offer some kind of positive model for political action. They do, however, have an energizing element. I think that's interesting because it, that kind of dialogues See, with the idea of of, uh, of it being disempowering, but at the same time energizing. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not sure I read that as energizing. So the example from uh, the Jennifer Silver book, that seems to me more about kind of claiming one's... Um, not exactly moral superiority, but one's kind of intellectual superiority. I've not been fooled. I'm not, um, you know, like I'm not a dumbass. I'm, I'm not, not a cut. I've not been. Yeah, I guess ultimately I've not been taken in. Um, so I think it's more, you know, I'm not I'm not like those sheeple. So even though, you know, even though it might be delivered with that kind of quality of um, of excitement, it doesn't seem to me that it follows that it's necessarily energizing. It seems to me, yeah, the opposite. Really, it's a way of signaling that you're superior, in fact, to other people. Yeah, yeah and I, I mean, I think it's a it's a good like it's a good quote and a good. I mean, it's an excellent book. I think that the interview, uh, you can you can say what you want about that, but that the book is is really fantastic. And so definitely take that um, call back to to a book that we've spoken about before. Seriously, I think the yeah, it seems to me like it is a bit of a displacement that you have this end. Of, like the title of the book, we're still here, is a defensive position and if you have a kind of an anger and a frustration that's maybe where the the energy the energy comes from and then it's a way to sort of yeah i guess i'm agreeing with the two of you it's a way to sort of <clears throat> i guess package that up and and say well you know i don't need to get him don't need to get involved because it's not it wouldn't mean anything anyway so, yeah. but, so but i think i do take them the libidinal point though that there is clearly uh, an energy behind modern conspiracy theories um, but I'm not sure I would entirely agree with the premise that Melly's like it's all melancholic and disempowered, but disempowered the tone of um, that he kind of talks about conspiracy theories as having. Um, but it is still just, I think we were we were right in our discussion to to kind of, you know, to agree with Melly that it is about the the the, the unpacking of the subject and the kind of political um, disempowerment and dissociation um, mm. that this is premised on. Yeah, no, and I, isn't this uh, just a recapitulation, effectively, of cynical ideology thesis, right? That I'm not, I'm above it. I'm somehow excluded from, you know, the ideological manipulation that others are subject to. I'm not, um, you know, I, I don't believe that COVID is actually a disease. I think it's made up. You know, I'm insulated from dealing with the difficulties of the fact that, for example, elites completely lost the plot and had no response to COVID and trying to come up with an, a political answer to that. Instead, you can insulate yourself in this kind of epistemological bubble, for example, and say, you know, I don't, uh, I don't even believe any of it. You know, it's all fake, right? I've seen the truth. And the, it, it's actually a kind of comfort zone rather than being a kind of radicalizing element where, oh, you've broken off from mainstream narratives, therefore you're willing to challenge um, the ruling class's rule head on. It's it's uh, very much the opposite. Anyway, I think all very interesting. Unless we have any final comments on that, we will, uh, we will put a break here. <music> 
And that was the music that you heard. Uh, and that was the break. And uh, I'm going to hand over to George, who's going to talk us through uh, this next section, which is going to take us through to the very end of the year, the last three sessions of the 2022 Bunga Cash Reading Club. Yeah. So just to reflect on where we've where we've come from. Um, so we started off the year with um, emergency politics and control. So we talked about Schmidt and Agamben, Corey Robin, Frank Ferradi, bit of Foucault in there as well, and Andreas Malmers um, on climate emergency. Then, as Alex sort of said, just wrapping up that fight, that um, last question, then it was on to cynical ideology, cynicism with uh, Zizek, trust with Giddens, and um, conspiracy theory with uh, that Timothy Melly uh, reading. So, yeah, the third part, techno-feudalism. If, uh, you know, if October is the the, the heart of, of autumn, then we have... Uh, autumn the autumn winter program you can um, the, the, yeah. the, the heart of revolution i don't know <laughs> yeah i was yeah i mean it's a revolutionary month depending on your on your calendar and in fact <laughs> uh we are recording this in november <clears throat> but we did the reading in october the nicest uh, season the nicest month even to be in to be in london for what it's worth it's probably not very much for most of our listeners and also it's uh it's now it's now <laughs> gone into november but anyway so um Today, talking about neo-feudalism, next month, AI, and then talking about new stru- new classes and new structures of um, class conflict. And I guess what we wanted to do with this um, particular part of the Reading Club syllabus was to address um, rising theories, um, theorizations of, of feudalism, either techno or neo, um, and one of the th- the comments which was in the reading club syllabus which i'm i'm guessing people who've uh, are listening to this have have seen on uh, on patreon was you'll own nothing and you'll be happy so this is a catchphrase originating from a 2016 essay by a danish mp called ida alken i think i'm pronouncing that correctly which was included in the eight predictions for the world in 2030 video put up by the world economic forum and so while this prediction was uh, originally explained as all products will become services is then you know we 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 I'm assuming have all heard of this, but um, now it's this kind of uh, summary of this of the coming dystopian times when the human right to property is going to be abolished apparently for the benefit of the few. So I guess the context of all of these discussions is you know I'm sure listeners know this uh, introduction by now: growing inequality, the undoing of the working class. What does this mean? Are we moving beyond capitalism? Or are we moving backwards, back to feudalism? So I guess the, the entryway into all of this is uh, Joel Kotkin's The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning for the Global Middle Class, uh, which is from 2020. And why did I think this would be a good book? I'm pretty sure this was my, uh, I was going to say suggestion, maybe insistence uh, that we that we tackle this. But it's a serious <clears throat> engagement with the idea of feudalism beyond that, I think, kind of metaphorical use that we often see to investigate whether some of the key aspects of feudalism really pertain in the early 2020s. Um, Kotkin himself um, is often described as a conservative geographer, but I'm not quite sure that that's right. And maybe we'll get into this, maybe we won't. Anyhow, he's a frequent commentator. Or he's not conservative. Yes. (laughs) I mean, in some ways, everyone's a geographer and everyone's a historian because everything happens in a place and a time. Um, But I'm not going to belabor that point. So he is definitely a geographer may be conservative i don't agree with the the characterization of conservative necessarily at any rate as i was saying frequent commentator on american politics and an interviewee for our calabunga series and i remember driving to chapman university in uh 
uh, Orange County, which is maybe the heart of California, to speak um, with Joel. Uh, sorry, driving with Alex um, to speak <clears throat> with Joel and hearing his account of how California had transitioned from the kind of the apex of the American dream, you know, the golden state, the land of, uh, then it became this land of wine, weather and weed. And now it's one of um, complete domination by the wealthy and tech in particular, and the pretty broken state. I know, I know we have a lot of Californian listeners. Uh, they may or may not uh, agree with this. Um, so as for the book itself, and, you know, it's the last part of the introduction before we get into it. Um, I remember listening to it on, as a, on an audio book. We talked about lockdown earlier a little bit, but I remember listening to it on my uh, <clears throat> state uh, allocated or state allowed walked around the park in south london during one of the lockdowns and yeah enjoyed listening to it and then read it in in hard copy so kick things off with feudalism as a concept um and i just wanted to quickly in case listeners have um skimmed this or, or haven't had a chance to read hopefully you can sort of follow along anyhow because we will give you the introductory bits and pieces that uh, you hopefully need um so yeah, i just wanted to lay out what i think are the key aspects of his um kind of account of neo-feudalism which i see as having the following key kind of um <clears throat> component parts he says there's a certain class structure which now pertains there's a certain orthodoxy and set of obligations. There's a concentration of wealth. There's a decline in upwards mobility. And there are also a few geographical aspects of neo-feudalism that I will just get into really quickly. So what's the class structure? Essentially, this is a, a division between instead of capitalists and workers and all, all that kind of bourgeois proletariat stuff that we might be familiar with under capitalism. It's a return to this idea of an aristocracy, a clerisy, and a third estate, which is made of two part, made up of two parts, the yeomanry and the serfs. Um, and he <clears throat> basically says that it's a symbiosis between this economic oligarchy and the clerisy, um, which is the big threat to the global middle class, which is, of course, who the book is issued as a warning to. In terms of obligations and orthodoxy, it's an ordered society. There's a very fixed set of ideas. There's a cultural pessimism and there's declining faith in democracy. Concentration of wealth, you know, kind of speaks for itself declining upward mobility um he sees this as a very static um society although it does characterize populism as peasant rebellions not fully successful um and also sees an overall decline in the world population by 2060 so that kind of static society uh, or, or slightly starting to go back uh, down is also reflected in population um and in terms of the geographical aspects he sees neo-feudalism as defined by gated cities which is maybe not a million miles away from Christoph Guy's citadels or Alex Hochuli's writing on Brazilianization and the militarization of social relations in, in uh, some parts of Brazil. And he also sees that we have superstar cities um, uh, lauded above places like uh, Milton Keynes in, in the UK. And I just wanted to finish by reading out one nice little passage, which I think sort of summarizes this um, and then pass it over to you guys. The new feudalism won't feature intrepid knights in armor or fortified castles or raise soaring cathedrals filled with liturgical chants. Instead, it will boast dazzling new technology and be wrapped in a creed of globalism and environmentalist piety. Yet for all its modernity, the coming age looks set to replace liberal dynamism and intellectual pluralism with an orthodoxy that puts a premium on stasis and accepts social hierarchy as the natural order of things. So that's a uh, pr pretty compressed um, kind of exposition of like the the idea at the center of this book essentially which is neo-feudalism um what do you guys think over to 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 my co-hosts 
just for the benefit of the listeners, um, Alex was shaking his head there with uh, when George was talking about the various um, analysts who've spoken about. Uh, um, excuse grind. me, I disagree with your reading of Achuli, um is what um, <laughs> exactly. I think that head shake That's was exactly... intended to be. <laughs> That's exactly right. No, as he, far he... as um, as far as uh, you don't get to talk, Alex, you don't get to talk about yourself on this podcast. I'm happy. You can only talk about other people. <laughs> so, as far as neo feudalism goes, um, it's that tricky thing, I guess, of uh, you know how much of the how much of the case or the argument is kind of weighted to the neo and how much is weighted to the feudalism. It seems to me there are two, you know, two things that don't really work in terms of making it in terms of his characterization. So one is he's a big, um, he's very critical of UBI, uh, universal basic income, because he sees this as a way essentially in which the oligarchy will um, kind of cultivate a passive uh, class of dependents and recipients. And um, this kind of uh, passivity and dependence on a superior caste he sees as a mark of feudalism. The problem is, though, obviously, you know, kind of a UBI in that scenario only works with a very um, powerful and centralized state and one which has, you know, kind of a fair amount of technical and bureaucratic efficiency in order to be able to deliver the UBI. And that doesn't sit with the model of neo-feudalism, which is or the model of feudalism, rather, which is premised on political decentralization. So he doesn't really deal with that, you know, like his account of the um, the kind of political structures seems to me, you know, superficially to resemble the late Roman Empire more than it does um, the Middle Ages. And the second point is about cities. So he makes, you know, he makes the point about cities no longer being the place where you can make your way in the world. Um, and that seems that's in contradistinction to what would be the place of cities in um, in the high period of uh, in the high period of the Middle Ages, right? When city air makes men free, that was the idea that you could the peasant or the serf or the country dweller could escape the um, the bondage, the hierarchy, the tradition and the custom of um, the countryside and make their way in the urban environment, which was more fluid and less um, bound by the kind of uh, oppression of the countryside. And he's saying that that model is inverted now because you can't make your way in the city. It's dominated by the tech oligarchy um, and by, you know, kind of uh, gig economy style, um, low productivity, low wage jobs, which is the service class in the urban mm. cores who have to kind of cater to, uh, the wealthy. And so there's no point going to the city, you know, he says kind of go to um, all the classic areas of urban development and instead look to other places um, where you might be able to have a better chance, um, notably kind of the exurbs and the suburbs. And so that flips feudalism, right? The idea that you can't succeed in the city seems to me that's much more kind of an, that would necessarily be a kind of an artifact of capitalist modernity rather than yeah. feudalism with in feudalism the city was actually the escape from rural kind of misery and backwardness and oppression and so if that's no longer the case then that doesn't seem to me to fit the pattern of feudalism yeah okay so he kind of gets political centralization and the state wrong and, and cities alex what about you did it does he get feudalism 
kind of right or is it what's better i mean you know i i think it's all the book is very neat um it's very clear it's an engaging read um descriptively very good you know um and i think you know at, at least as a work of not not of like original research but of synthesis um he pulls together a, a whole bunch of different strands and does so engagingly and i think the picture that he builds up without any of the kind of let's say like theoretical apparatus or whatever um is is a perfectly um credible one you know you go yeah that is that is what's going on right he's he's um focused on some important things but i think that there's you know i think there's the weakness i would totally agree with phil with regard to the city and especially with regard to the nature of the state and the nature of sovereignty which is far more dispersed in the middle ages and we're not really seeing that um and there's there isn't really the the real inklings of that other than um, you know, a turn to, for example, company towns, which I think you've mentioned at one point in the in the book. Now, company towns are something to be very concerned about um, as a, as a kind of con- ongoing development, right? As a way in which workers are less free, but they're such a feature of capitalism, right? That you that you had them throughout the, the especially the earlier part of the twentieth century. But there's nothing really new there. Um, you know, and you had part- more paternalistic models. Um, I think the Kellogg's, for example, had that and the, you know, Quaker owned businesses as well as far more um, brutal ones in mining towns where you're only able to buy from the company shop, all these things. But again, you know, a lot of, uh, and I'm, I'm using that as an example for a wider point, which is that so many of the aspects that he seizes on as examples of feudalism for me could have very easily have been taken from capitalism's earlier history or from other places, um, even contemporarily. So, you know, you could find in place or in time within the, you know, epoch of capitalism, um, examples to illustrate what is going on without having to rely on this feudalism thing, which uh, is more distorting, I think, than clarifying. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the, the idea of feudalism has a, um, you know, not, not a shock, aspect but it, it certainly uh focuses the the reader's attention maybe it should have been the coming of of early capitalism or the return of early capitalism but i wanted to ask you about the both about the other part of the title so the coming of neo-feudalism does he hedge his bets a little bit i mean is this um yeah both allow... neo both neo and coming i think hedges bets that's true because he can always he can always kind of um you know, pull back from the implication of what he's saying. Oh no, it's kind of a development. It's never going to happen. But unless you, you know, have a particular model about tendencies rather than, um, you know, actual kind of pathways or trajectories, it seems to me it's hard really to make the case he wants to make. Should have called it the edging of neo-feudalism. Um, you don't know if it's actually going to come. That um, would have been an, an edgier title. For sure. Um, but I so we got a lot of quite a few questions from both reading groups and individual listeners, and I've tried to st- stir these throughout the um the episode like like this the smoked fish through the, the kedgeree. So hopefully this will produce a um a delicious dish for everybody. And this is one of the reading group uh questions. Um so I just wanted to to I'll pose this to the to the two of you. Um, so Rigi proposed a series of systemic cycles of accumulation in which a productive phase of accumulation was inevitably followed by a phase where fictitious capital was more dominant. Does techno-feudalism not simply denote the latter phase, i.e. one of these less productive ones, in another of these cycles centered on the long-term decline of US empire? Who wants yeah, to take good. that, that one? I think from, from Giovanni Rigi. Um, I think that's, you know, I think that's important to propose as a, as a possibility and to 
turn to what is happening now is potentially something cyclical rather than you know kind of terminal. Um, but it all. But I think at the same time we should be open to the possibility of a of a of a secular change, um, an epochal change even, uh, whereby capitalism no longer relies on setting labor, you know, primarily labor to work um, and extracting surplus value in that form. Instead, it relies increasingly on the commodification of uh, of, of other areas of life um, and. That sort of, you know, it's been termed asset capitalism more lim- limit in a more limited form, in referring um, especially to um, home ownership and and the um, proliferation of financial forms that uh, that it comes off of leverage. But I think that you know, the idea with that tying that to U.S. decline um, would maybe not be sufficient because ultimately, you know, is Chinese capitalism promising something that's radically different? For yeah. example. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Arigi's work is something which I sh- I feel like I've I've read a little of, and probably given the impression that I've read <laughs> more and in with more comprehension than than I have. But is it would this the, be the implication here then that we're sent that we're on one of these downswings until um, we have a kind of a Chinese hegemon, which which yeah, produces a, be... a more productive phase, and we're just we're just stuck until that point. That would be the implication, I think. And it would, um, I mean, the reason I don't, the reason I'm kind of skeptical of it, though I wouldn't, you know, dismiss it out of hand, but the reason I'm skeptical is because it seems to me a bit, well, it misses two things. On the one hand, I think it misses the point about, you know, I mean, so Arigi cycles begin very early, you know, like in the in the dissolution of feudalism, in fact, and the emergence of the Dutch Republic and the Venetian Republic and so on. And that seems to me to miss the, the kind of the fundamental break that is impl- involved in industrialization. Um, so that it's the emergence of industrial capitalism that is qualitatively distinct to these cycles of hegemony and, you know, kind of um, cunning merchants, essentially, that you have in these earlier periods. And that's a fundamental break in human history, not only, well, in human history, but also in capitalism itself. Um, so, I, you know, I think that is, that kind of scrambles that, that um paradigm but the other element of it also is the the fact about it's a one-sided because it only looks at um capital without looking at labor and so it's hard to um you know it's hard to kind of simply abstract away from our context or dissolve it all into the ether of these kind of tremendous historic cycles without um accounting for the defeat of organized working class movements in our contemporary cycle as well no, good, um, good point. Yeah. And I just to add, tack something onto that, and I'm sure we'll come on to elaborate more on that. But I think the absence of um, working class agency marks the book to a certain degree because it ends up it's a quite a paternalistic picture in which he wants the working class to have access to goods, good thing, yeah. Um, but the working class never appears really as as a subject, um, and I think that. The, the fact that his vision is one in which um, the working class is um, nicely integrated into capitalism, but you know, very much in a sub- subordinate role, not ruling in any way, um, I guess tells is why I think he he ends up missing out the. Yeah, but the he wouldn't. That role. He wouldn't say that though, would he? I mean, he would. You know, in his vision, um, his kind of corporatist structures would be adequate to account for um, working class integration. 
No, that that they would be, they would provide working class integration, but they there is very little working class agency there, other than through the top of the trade unions uh, bargaining, mm. you know, at the at the top level. So you know, it, yeah, because he good. because that's his vision, he doesn't real he doesn't really note the the transition and the change and the defeat of the working class that you were just referring to, Phil. Well, I think, um, yeah, just to, just to, to round this off, the the book is you know is subtitled a, a warning to the global middle class so that's maybe that's maybe the the, the intended um reader of this and we will come on to some of these questions about class structure in a bit more detail shortly but before that another kind of um so a listener comment this this time elo on patreon um which again is on the kind of the the, the whole idea of neo-feudalism um and so eli says i find uh kotkin seriously grating but ah well the book is actually surprisingly well researched and obviously channels a whole body of middle-class homeowner types suffering generational downwards mobility that said two years out doesn't kotkin's case look askew to reality even for a middle-class sock dem boomer suburbanite like so many other commentators he appears to have taken the tech oligarchs his term at their word that they could ensure endless labor surpluses and wage deflation forevermore how can a techno feudalism thesis account account for straining energy grids inflation and labor shortages eli asks yeah so eli makes a good point um though i'd say i mean so i don't think you know it's homeowner types because if you're a homeowner then you're not really you know you're not really a serf you're a beneficiary in kotkin's account at least beneficiary of the of that the asset economy and you're probably more likely to be at the upper end of the social strata that he depicts rather than at the lower end but notwithstanding that um you know yeah i mean eli makes a good point i suppose kotkin could reply that um you know the kind of the straining energy grids and the lack of infrastructure is the abandonment of modernity and the embrace of stagnation legitimated by green ideology hostility to growth and development so I suppose he could, you know, talk about that in terms of energy grids and the declining, um, the decline of the energy grid would be consistent with techno or neo-feudalism. And inflation and labor shortages, though, is, you know, that is a trickier one. You know, it's got to be said. And it does suggest like, a, again, still kind of a society that is more fluid and dynamic than the kind of stagnant, um, you know, one way track of feudalism would suggest. And I think just on labor surpluses as well, or, or shortages, um, one that's a very recent development. I think I'll, we will see how all this plays out. As we discussed recently with Alex Gurevich uh, with regard to um, you know a, a huge superstructure of service jobs in the economy, um, providing all sorts of business services, which you could probably quite easily get rid of without serious impact to, to the economy. Um, albeit with some more reorganization necessary, that if you were to actually shed all that, you know, as some kind of Schumpeterian types advocate today, the kind of a complete shakeout of the economy, um, you would definitely not have labor shortages today. So I, I, to a certain extent, the picture is maybe a bit artificial. And we have um, a lot of people employed in part because of the surpluses from finance get circled around in all sorts of services. Um, I don't know, you know, whether that uh, would continue indefinitely. Yeah, and an, another good point. I wanted to move on to because I think it actually follows on from from what you both said. The point around the class structure that that Kotkin um, posits for this kind of neo feudal um, reality, and it has basically three parts: oligarchs, as I mentioned earlier, oligarchs, clerisy, and the third estate. 
Um, and so the oligarchs, I think this is where it's clear that Kotkin takes California um, as the model. So rather than Italy being the country of the future, as, as uh, we argue in our book, um, Kotkin's model is essentially the state of California, these um, tech oligarchs, these kind of um, billionaire, um, you know, hoodie wearing uh, types um, who consider themselves as as outsiders, um, despite being enormously wealthy and powerful. Rishi and, Sunak. Well, you have one of them in charge tech, of the UK now. A Californian. Is he a tech, is he a tech bro? Um, yeah, well, he's as close as you're going to get to one, I think. Yeah, in the UK. In yeah. the British context. He went to Stanford. He orients himself around all that management school crap. He made a point of dressing down with the hoodie and the tracksuit. You know, like, I mean, he's seen in a tie now, but he definitely had his very kind of well, um, wealth kind of posed um, casual wear photographs in the mm. early phase of the leadership race. I would say he's more of a of an investment bro. He's a Goldman Sachs guy, not a tech guy. But that's well, you know, we they, they're, they're so the yeah, but they're the service. They're, so, yeah. they're another, sir. Yeah, they're another service class for the tech oligarchy, aren't they? Yeah. Okay, but they're the lower oligarchy, maybe. But anyhow, no, no the, yeah. finance, I think the finance important. bros are on top. But anyway, that's this is this is a. Uh... Anyway, he's married. He's married to somebody who would definitely count as an oligarch. Yeah. Okay. Well, the important thing that Kotkin says because he doesn't. Um, for some reason, predict and he does make Sunak's he does make rise. the point about marriages within these groups, solidif solidifying these trends, right? Yes, which is yes. Um, if, um, you know, if, sorry. if perhaps I, I sorry to interrupt, yeah, were allowed to continue my exposition, some of these questions may be preempted. I now have to say something about that, otherwise it looks like a dick move. Um, but no, I think so. One of the things he says about the oligarchs is they consider themselves as outsiders, but support a sort of scientific caste system, um, along with the welfare state best paid for by the market as the way of ordering society. Um, the clerisy. So this is, um, in Kotkin's view, the people who are tasked with, um, the, this Podcasters, political... academics, yeah. you know, charity workers, you, those kind of people, you know, you know, you know, the type, um, yes, yeah, so the clerisy has the political task of securing submission of the third estate, which we move on to in a second. And so they're employed outside of material production and essentially have the role of cultural legitimizers through, as Phil said, podcasts, blogs, writing of various sorts, et cetera. Um, and the university, accordingly, is a key institution for the production of these sorts of new elites. They use science, capitalized. Um, they have a set of progressive ideas, essentially environmentalism, but also, he says, globalism power of experts um talks about gender as well and they um, allow this new ruling class which is themselves and the oligarchs to kind of um i guess indulge in transhuman um uh, beliefs if this is their kind of religion if they have one um and he says the he talks about the green class order so this his environmentalism comes up again and again in this book, and we'll talk about that a bit more later. But so, but beneath these two, the oligarchs and the clerisy, the third estate is made up of the embattled yeomanry and the new serfs. So the embattled yeomanry, these are the people who've lost upwards mobility and are now split, split by a striking generational divide, especially around property. Um, they've got kind of decreased levels of ownership. Um, and the these decreased levels of ownership are defended by the green clerisy. This is where we started, that you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Um, and he says, we see essentially the return of the importance of inherited wealth and marriage as a, as a way of reproducing all of this uh, system. And then the new serfs. So these have lost traditional representation in the political left um, and 
as I said before, he sort of styles populism as a peasant rebellion and says the political implications aren't clear. So this is a, um, I think it's, we're going to talk about the new classes and new class structure um, later in this section of the reading group. Um, but I just wanted to sort of lay that out there um, and, you know, let we can see what we think of of, of this. Yeah, I think well, just two points, one on the clerisy um, and one on uh, the yeomanry. I think the clerisy is very good coinage, and I think it's a much more useful concept than PMC. PMC, if done properly, is about uh, kind of restructuration of capitalism, monopoly capital, which no one talks about, by the way, nowadays. No one talk, uses the term monopoly capital, but it's essential to understanding the PMC because that's what the argument was hinged upon. When people say PMC today, especially in a in a kind of dismissive or critical manner, they're often referring to something quite specific to people with humanities degrees working in NGOs in academia, in the media principally, and effectively people who work with ideas and maybe uh, work in the ideology factory, right? Um, which is fine to criticize. It's important that that, that, that is criticized, but um, that isn't the PMC, right? That's only a section of the PMC. And what is useful about the clerisy is that it refers very specifically to function, right? Not to position in a stratum necessarily, although it it, al it also does that, but um, but exactly to, to you know to the kind of uh, function and even political function that they play. And you know, as a consequence, clerisy isn't as something that is transversal like the PMC, like across society, but is actually just a section, um, is a section of it. So I think that's much more useful. It's a much more useful term. Um, to use rather than kind of throwing around PMC when you know you're actually meaning a quite specific section of it, people working in ideology production. Um, so that so that's great, and I and I try to adopt that more than than PMC when you know when appropriate. The, 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 as to the lower down classes, um, I think he is revealing in his disc, in in the way that he talks about one, firstly the middle class, which has um, all the problems of uh, U.S. Americans talking about it because they they mean the working class, but also they specifically mean the respectable working class. And I think that is telling when he talks about the yeomanry ref referring to the middle 60%. Okay, so if the middle 60% is the good people who we want to defend, that means that there's a uh, an upper 20%, which is the oligarchs um, and the clerisy. Um, and then you have uh, and then you have a lower uh, the very bottom 20% uh, underclass. So what does that remind us of? Well, that seems awfully like the structure of American capitalism in the post-war period, um, where there's very little ex uh, general uplift. You know, I mean, if, if that if he wants to speak on behalf of the middle 60%, that does leave the bottom 20% behind. Um, and so, I mean, it's, it's all that in kind of seeming to hint at what, you know, um, what would be a model for the future, what he would like to defend, he would defend something that is um, so deeply imperfect as that. Bill? Yeah, I I mean, I, you know, I'm kind of uh, torn to some degree. I mean, I think the kind of a stagnant, you know, a stagnant capitalism in which you have the defeat of um, its antagonist in the form of organized labor it seems to me you know it would be uh, it's not surprising that it would take on some of these kinds of feudal feudal features without ever actually being able to fully embody them and you know i mean i think um 
I see the appeal of the clarity as well as a label for a particular kind of cast of people and that it has some of the advantages that Alex has pointed out. But I also think, you know, it's not worthwhile getting too hung up on, you know, how you kind of slice and dice these categories. Um, because uh, I think I still think the PMC talking about the PMC in terms of broad strata that fulfill certain kinds of um, technical roles in uh, industrialized societies. And that gives them certain kind of gatekeeping functions and influence and so on, which allows them to, you know, kind of have um, potentially a, you know, nefarious or insidious effect, which seems to me to be the case at the moment, but not necessarily so. Um, but that it's in you know, a particular context that they um, perhaps take on an outsized influence. So, you know, I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't want to, I guess, um, I'm not convinced by the overall model, though I can see why it has some polemical value. But I think Kotkin wants to, you know, go a bit more beyond polemic and make the case that this is actually a solidifying new kind of social structure. Um, and it's, I mean, so one final point on this, I, I just to quickly make is, I think the reason, the other reason it can't really work is because, um, you know, capitalism, modern capitalism is predicated on the idea of the individual, right? And I don't mean that as by way of criticism, but just by way of kind of that accurate accounting for. And in fact, I'd say it's, you know, one of the positives in a world historic sense, it's one of the positives and one of the absolute gains of um, capitalism, that it has institutionalized individuality in a way that previous kinds of human society were unable to. But the point being that a society that is kind of organized around the individual being able to enter into contract and particularly to sell their um, their labor for t you know as uh, as time is something that means that you will never be able to have a naturalistic hierarchy the way in which feudalism was and yeah. that the two things yeah. are essentially incompatible um, in a very basic and elemental way. And that I think is lost on, you know, that just kind of falls through the cracks of Kotkin's analysis. Yeah. And, I mean, and it happened, so uh, yeah, go on, Alex. No, just, just a very small thing about that. I think that is all that connects very well to what I was saying about the middle 60% is that that is the sort of idea of, of, of this kind of um, stratification. Whereas the reality is that you have a huge mass of working class, which accounts for 70% of the population, maybe 80%, maybe 60%, depending on where you are um, and how many small businesses there are versus large ones and so on. Um, and and there's actually greater homogeneity amongst that working class, despite its despite the divisions. Um, and that gets missed out when you're trying to do this stratification thing of going, well, these are the middle class people, but they own homes. These yeah. are the people with nothing. And it's like, well, actually, if you zoom out um, and look at it in, in perhaps much more orthodox Marxist terms, you've actually just got a huge body who uh, of people who just have to sell their labor to survive. Yeah, I mean, I think the my starting point and why I was, you know, I'm sympathetic to this to the analysis is that essentially what Phil was saying the there is a question of what capitalism looks like without the the dynamic motive force of class struggle, without you know the organized working class as a as a as an actor within within that kind of that dynamic. And it's quite possible that it will end up taking some regressive feudal characteristics, but whether it makes that that leap into um, into neo feudalism or backwards into feudalism proper, I think is you know that that is a, a 
that is very different. And yeah, I happen to agree with you, Alex. I think the the, the best part of the um, the book or the part that I enjoyed both listening to and reading the most was on on the clerisy. And I think the the uh, explicitness with which you know this this um, parasitic group is then tied to the oligarchy and the entire kind of function in society, despite the quote unquote progressive ideals, is a conservative one of maintaining of maintaining the structure i think that's that's a point that almost can't be made um too too much and i think you know to, to be fair he does make this quite compellingly and the like you i think the the, the term clerisy is a is a very useful one um but just finally on the the yeomanry which is i think a, a key kind of constituency you know as it is obviously the there's differences between american and british uh, uses of middle class and this is this is I would say to a large extent, the American middle class. This is like what an American would would tend to mean, <clears throat> this um this large group. And this is who the you might call them like the kind of quote unquote um respectable working class in a British context or in other contexts, but I think this is one of the key um kind of uh, intended readers of of the book. Um but anyway, just a, a, a listener question on the um on the class structure point. And this actually is a continuation of Eli's comment on patreon um so he just says but he kind of replies to his own comments so i think this is a you know a continuation he says adding a, a fresh bit on hearing the episodes with alex Gorovich, which alex you mentioned um which on post-work socialism Kotkin's strongest attack is his strongest point is his attack on ubi the problems there are both the issue of the technology for zuckertopia simply not existing and also the question of how much of the population actually lives or lived purely on arms under feudalism if i wanted to come back around and reinforce Kotkin's thesis for him, the new serfdom might be something more like bullshit jobs. The managerial lord rents you the opportunity of doing some minimal amount of productive work using his estates or corporations developed infrastructure. And in exchange, you can spend the rest of your time on a variety of deferential bullshit. Your striking can't really bring the primary value capturing processes to a halt the way it could have done in an industrial workplace. So if you don't like it, you're fired. What do you guys make of, of, of this question? Yeah, I mean, I I think that reorganization of of labor does present real problems in terms of the leverage that workers have, um, especially if it's kind of parceled out in that way. Though, um, yeah, you know, I, there's there's still things which need people altogether doing work, um, and there's also um, key points of leverage. I think this is why there's been so much discussion about, for example, uh, truckers or or, or uh, rail workers, for example, who have um, you know, the possibility still of very serious leverage on the choke, be able to exercise a chokehold on, you know, the key conduits for, for distribution and therefore for production. It's good. I mean, you know, I think Eli's right in the sense that the, um, uh, you know, I mean, in David Graeber's book on bullshit jobs, he talks about the retinue, right, which is kind of a classic feudal term. The Lord would have kind of court uh, or, you know, kind of his hangers on and camp followers and courtiers and what have you. And so, you know, insofar as you do get, um, you do get these retinues of flunkies in among, you know, which in the tech oligarchy and the wealthy kind of compete over them. And it becomes kind of uh, the ability to squander lots of um, kind of poorly paid uh, labor becomes a mark of kind of status and prestige. Uh, that, you know, is, again, I mean, that seems to me like it's, uh, 
you know, if anything, it's kind of a part of uh, industrial capitalism more than feudalism in the sense that you have a superfluity of labor, you know, the sheer the sheer productive power of the forces of production under industrial capitalism means that you have the superfluity of labor. And so you have to find ways of recreating um of recreating hierarchy um, in the specific form, though, of employment. Uh, so again, I mean, I think you know it can it's consistent with uh, a much more kind of classical account, which doesn't require Kodkin's um, take on it. Yeah, no, I think um, I think there's a lot, a lot of truth in that. So um, we've got quite a few questions which kind of broaden things up in, and I tried to group them um, as much as possible. But just to kick off with the first one, which is, I guess, on Kotkin's political project to a certain extent. So this is a reading group question. Um, starts with quite boldly. Is the American new right, which they think Kotkin's a part of, bereft of new ideas? Kotkin rehashes themes that appear in Lint and Lash's work, but they appear to have nothing deeper to offer than a nostalgia for the post-war consensus. We've obviously talked about Linton Lash quite a lot, um, but yeah, is does Kotkin fall within this this group of um, kind of tired, uh, bereft of ideas, American new writists? Um, I mean, I must first apologize for uh, my co-host's um, brain damage and in, in consistently pronouncing Michael Lind's name, Lint, as if it's the Swiss chocolate. Um, I do try to um, rein them in a little bit and... and, and uh, uh, you know, account for the retardation, Swiss. but you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> only uh, a Swiss would take such such exception. No, to it's, a it's because it's because George it's because George does it on purpose because he knows it, it annoys me, and I shouldn't have let on that I was annoyed by it. But I mean, you know, anyway, um, I don't care. Just to, rise I above it, Alex. If if the if the other boys are saying things that that annoy you, just rise above it. They'll um, just stop it if they don't get a reaction. I don't care to classify Kotkin with other people and say he's part of such and such a group or not. Um, what I do think is that he, if if he belongs to this um, post neoliberal conservatism and i think in that in that regard he does he's an old social democrat i remember when uh, george and i were about to go interview him i actually said to him you know actually reading his stuff i'm pretty sure he's an old social democrat and that's exactly how he described himself when we when we spoke to him um it just happens that his more you know conservative social mores and and dislike of progressivism um places him by uh by default into a more conservative camp that is more just reflective of the fact of uh, of the cultural turn and the fact that the cultural questions have been so determining in terms of where you end up on the political spectrum uh, whatever i don't really care about that i think there is a, a there is interesting stuff being done in, on the the american new right though let me just be specific here. I mean the kind of more mainstream types because you could also use the new right to refer to Trumpism um, and to the effectively the American far right, you know, um, and then, you know, we use that term new right. I've used it in Brazil to refer to Bolsonarismo. I don't refer to it to, to mean something more mainstream. Um, but to, it, that more mainstream new right of a kind of non-neoliberal right, uh, there's interesting stuff going on in terms of talking about industrial policy for example. But there is always a nostalgia there for um, the social democratic period and ultimately what makes them conservative and why Kotkin is a conservative is because the working class does not have and hold real power in his vision. Um, they're um, 
meant to be incorporated and integrated into structures which allow them to have maybe some limited say more than today. But um, it's very much a return to a status quo ante and a more paternalistic arrangement um, than you have today. I think it's a bit unfair on Kotkin. Um, in as much as, you know, I mean, he would defend himself, I think, from such charges, right? That it's necessarily paternalistic. I mean, if you think the working, you know, that the working, if you think, uh, if you believe that the working class should rule, right? Um, that's a, di- and that is, that's a different vision, right? I'm not sure that uh, he's paternalistic uh, necessarily so. And certainly like Michael Lind has, um, you know, I mean, his whole thing was like, bring back Jimmy Hoffa. Right. When we had him on the podcast and I put it to him, that is that his vision? He said, yes. Right. And kind of the, you know, the kind of um, tough, uh, crude, uncouth, old fashioned union boss. Right. Isn't like a vision of um, of uh, kind of uh, paternalism for the working class, it seems to me. So I'm not sure like I'm not sure paternalism is quite fair. And I suppose I'd respond to the reading group by saying um it's not, I don't know that they're out of ideas. I mean, Lind, by his own admission, has become more corporatist and more kind of social democratic over time in opposition to the way in which American society and capitalism has developed. And I think the, so he, you know, he admits that his own views have changed. Um, and I think beyond that, I think there is, you know, the consensus on the um, on the post, post-war post social democratic state kind of reaches much further than the right. So to see it purely as a, you know, purely as a malady or a fallacy of America's, um, you know, kind of uh, right-wing thinkers, it seems to me uh, not only perhaps, you know, ungenerous in a sense that it's self-defeating, but also amidst the fact that that image is still exerts a remarkable grip in different ways um, on the left as well. So it can't be seen, you know, kind of look to the bean in thine own eye before thy brothers, I guess. Yeah, look at look at the 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 yeah the isn't it the beam in one own one's own eye before the moat in in another's? Yeah, but anyway, in thy brothers, can, yeah. Yeah, we can leave the 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 biblical discussions, but I, I mean, I think I have a short answer to this um, question for the reading group, which is that they're kind of half right. The American New Right doesn't really have that many new ideas but it has one old idea that's a pretty good one and that's class they talk about class and they talk about um the class interests of the working class as against the progressive set of cultural ideas of of the you know the left or the 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 hyper liberals and the so clarity. therefore the clarity and so therefore they're you know they're onto something um and you know not a necessarily a new vision of society but a pretty kind of um solid if if slightly for some a bit old fashioned these days to be talking about class that's what they're they're doing um but anyhow there's a, a couple more like, can themes. i just make a, a point because yeah, I, I suspect that sure. um phil and, and probably george as well that if this book were written by someone more traditionally situated on the kind of contemporary center left um making the same arguments but and not making maybe some of the critical points about the ideas of progressivism and some of those cultural arguments so if it was someone if owen jones wrote this book and you could imagine him right basically writing this book but absent some other elements or whatever um well you're, you're shaking your head but whatever just go with the hypo- hypothetical for a second you would be slating this book you'd be slating it for its nostalgia for its um you know 
social democratic thing for not really talking about working class uh, empowerment, about subjectivity, um, about not talking about uh, breaking with, uh, you know, rupture and so on. So you're, I think there's a, a certain, um, you know, um, double standards that you, you know, you're much more soft gloves uh, with someone who no. is identified on the right who talks about class than if the same thing were so said by someone on the left. And I think, you know, in both cases, I would be uh, equally critical of, of its limitations. Oh, I would be equally critical, but you wouldn't be. <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. Like, uh, I think that's a bit below the belt. I, um, I, uh, I, you know, I'm happy to admit what I found thrilling in the Kotkin was his willingness to um, attack uh, pro the progressivist left's kind of um, most cherished ideas about uh, green, you know, about uh, the ideas of uh, green politics and the cultural left. Um, and in addition to the fact that he's willing to make a kind of an unabashed case for um, for working class interests. Now, you, you, know, you can criticize them for being kind of so limited and partial and that he doesn't believe in putting the working class in, in power as the solution to um, the ills of capitalism. You know, fine. But nonetheless, I mean, it seems to me he's not, um, he isn't, I don't, he is, and this is the difference, I think, maybe with somebody like Owen Jones and why I would be happy to take Kotkin over Owen Jones is that he is happy to be heterodox, right? Whereas Owen Jones is the quintessential conformist. That's fair um, Who will never, never strike out independent or be willing to kind of bear the brunt of independence on the left, where it seems to me that Kotkin is clearly willing to do so. And so that means, you know, not only kind of an intrinsically more admirable figure, but also that he's willing to draw out conclusion, you know, take kind of stances and conclusions that are um, more difficult um, and to think them through, I think, in a way that somebody like Owen Jones wouldn't be. I like to, I would like to think that I would behave um, as a model of kind of intellectual probity and it wouldn't matter to me who had written this or not. But I think that being a bit more honest, I probably would be much less likely to read um, something that Owen Jones had, had written than something that Kotkin had written. But there, I think there but is let's say Thomas Frank, Thomas Frank no, to take a more fair example. than There is, there is a reason for that is that Kotkin and I would not probably agree that we neither of us would think that we have the same political project but owen jones might say no we have the same political project and i would say no we don't and so it would i would be fundamentally more um uh, hostile because i would um think that he was trying to put forward um a different articulation of like trying to get working class people in power which um i don't think Kotkin would say that's that's his his project from from the start i mean you, you know we, we we await owen jones's next book to see um to see if it does end up saying this which i think is quite unlikely um for the reasons that phil said then we can we can return to this and um we can just all assume that we <laughs> that we're all neutral and um and kind of high-minded high until until that point um but in terms of i think there's so there's a couple of questions here on uh, the end of feudalism, because if we're going back to it now, I think uh, at least there's few people who would say it never ended in the in the first place. Although you know, listeners might might disagree, might find an exception to this um, to this thesis I just advanced there. So the first question is, how did feudalism end? And I guess specifically, um, what would this suggest for a political strategy today to move past the coming neo feudalism? 
But Cod King, I mean, he wants the third estate, right? That is kind of what he pushes to. He even uses the political, you know, or the, you know, he kind of invokes the category of the third estate, which was like a formal, actually a kind of a formal legal category and status in the old um, pre-modern society. And it doesn't, you know, again, I mean, it doesn't exist today. You can kind of statistically group together different demographic layers and say, this is the third estate. But to really kind of motivate a, um, you know, if you want to motivate a revolt of the third estate, such as it is today, then you need to be able to identify their common interests. And it's such a large group that doesn't have actually a shared kind of political or legal position as it did in pre-modern society that it seems to me, you know, that doesn't actually offer us any way out. So all you can see within Kotkin's framework is kind of endless, and this is closer to Lint's kind of vision, in fact, is an endless cycle of um, kind of peasants' revolts in the form of populist insurgencies of the ballot box and further kind of elite repression in response to the peasants' revolts. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I actually, I agree with that point of the third estate. The third estate, actually, if you think about it, would probably be that a lot of the lower PMC, right? Um, so it, it, anyway, sorry, I, I thought I, I thought you weren't using that term anymore. No, well, I, it, I, I'm using it very specific. I think, look, the problem with the PMC thing is that it's such a fucking nerdy term that only PMCs use it. So if you're going to use the term, you might as well be yeah. really nerdy about it and only true. use it very specifically and correctly. Um, otherwise, not at all. Um, I, I think. To be not Marxist about this, or at least, you know, kind of knowingly acknowledge that, you know, the end of feudalism um, happened subterraneously and not politically. Um, but that... Be Marxist, Alex, by all means, but at least use English language terms subterraneously. You know, what is that? Well, I mean, that it, that it happened in kind of autonomous um, impersonal processes, for example, uh, the capital accumulation and so on, as well as and it really the the something like the French Revolution was a political coup de grace to the old feudal structures, but which had already been undermined from underneath by the by creating this new class of bourgeois, right? Um, but let, let's just take the French Revolution um, as the as the end of feudalism, right, and take its political end. The end of feudalism, the end of neo feudalism, then would presumably require some form of bourgeois revolution, and I guess that's what he's getting out and talking about. Um, talking about the third estate. Now, this is something that I'm um, really interested in and I'm trying to figure out. I don't have an answer for, um, you know, ready-made, but I think there is a problem that we continually refer back to bourgeois revolution, that the left continually does this. Um, and ironically, that the the right or, you know, what it what would what it would be called today, I guess, is the kind of liberal center, neoliberal center, whatever, also continually tries to redo bourgeois revolution, albeit in perverted forms. I made reference to this in another episode recently, that um, neoliberalism was itself a bourgeois revolution and it attacked the old structures of the Fordist compromise as if it were feudalism, right? Oh, these old privileges. Look at how all the neoliberals yeah. talked about social rights as if they were privileges. Um, and so they continue to want to redo bourgeois revolution. And the left also has no other imagination other than to do that. So, you know, getting rid of the queen, okay, cool, chop off her head. But, you know, let's be serious. That's not going to radically transform our circumstances um but this is what also politics... because she's she's dead now okay. so if you cut off her head <laughs> you can still now chop off be... her head <laughs> actually that's a good, that's an even better metaphor you're cutting off the queen but she's already dead yeah yeah, um, yeah that's a good one anyway um but you know the left also this is the left um and this is the world you know after socialism right that we don't really have a vision of um transcending the market um and we all we have is for forms of containing the market perhaps limiting it 
uh, and uh, maybe having a more yeah. radical form of democracy, which is all good. I mean, I'm in favor of that, but um, I'm, I'm no. But to take your point, Alex, right? God can. I mean, you know, you would take kind of an accelerationist viewpoint if you really thought it was near feudal, right? If you thought we were living in kind of um, feudalism, you would want anything that expanded the market. You know, would be good yeah, because it would yeah. dissolve these kinds of structures of uh, lordly kind of privilege and oppression. Um, but that doesn't seem to me to be the case, you know, that kind of just um, expanding, you know, kind of uh, an accelerationist case for the market wouldn't resolve the problems that Godkin identifies. So, mm. again, I mean, you kind of end up in the in the limits of the thesis, right, and the way in which he ends up kind of binding himself in all these contradictions, um, and I think, I mean, you know, the best case you could make for it is that it has kind of a polemical purchase. Things are so bad, they begin to look like feudalism, but it doesn't really have kind of theoretical legs beyond that. Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the polemical point, the emphasis of stagnation and lack of dynamism is, is an important one. I mean, I would disagree with, um, I guess, what's implicit in Kotkin and what I think you said, Phil, that the French Revolution ended feudalism. For, forgotten about the english revolution i mean come on man anyway moving on um accelerating if you will um in this um connection there is a, a listener question this is stone lawson on patreon um who asks should the left want post-humanism so we referred to this kind of post-humanist um or transhuman uh, ideology previously um but so yeah so should the left want post-humanism i understand that a point of socialism is to have mastery of humans first and second natures it seems that technology might be a hindrance to a socialist project although i might be reading too much land and kaczynski also reading made me think that the real end of neo-feudalism is a post-humanism for the few and a non-existence for the many yeah i mean i you know so on this point i thought kodkin was very good on the you know kind of what is so allure why so why posthumanism has had a moment um because it was powered by the kind of the fetishistic um illusions and obsessions of this you know kind of extraordinarily um wealthy and powerful cast of silicon valley overlords um but at the same time you know i think the allure of posthumanism reaches deeper than just um, privileged elites. I mean, it's, you know, kind of a trope you would find, um, I mean, you know, uh, arguably in in the Enlightenment itself, right? Um, depending on how far back you want to trace it. So something which has a much more kind of wide and enduring appeal uh, to humanity as such in the modern period. It's not something, you know, it's kind of uh, an exaggerated or perverse kind of form of that. So, you know, I'm not, I think, I mean, I suppose I wouldn't answer Stone Lawson's common question directly by saying whether or not the left should want posthumanism. I'd put it more like this. I think that, you know, in current conditions, posthumanism or whatever kind of allure and promise posthumanism offers would inevitably mean something that would be only for the elite. And so that would be, you know, that would be my kind of take on it. Yeah. No, I think um the the, the idea of transhumanism or posthumanism is is possibly the kind of the the oligarchs or one part of neo-feudalism's attempt to escape from from its own um restrictions but a couple of questions um from reading groups on environmentalism and i'll go I'll take both of these two together and you can answer i'm the kind of the question master i'm enjoying being the um being being the host it's a lot of power it's quite um it's, it's quite intoxicating and hopefully i'm using it 
um, judiciously. Uh, we will see. Um, so, yeah, firstly, Kotkin proposes there is an alignment between tech capital and the NGO purveyors of what he calls green indulgences is there any deeper ideological connection between the two or is this a historically contingent alliance of mutual convenience i think that's a good question and secondly in, contrary to environmentalist dogma from the 1970s for example natural resources including energy and food did not run out but became more readily available is this true hasn't there been a grain shortage most recently highlighted in the ukrainian conflict may want to start with the with the first one and um might have to skim over the second but both interesting points there i think i think it's a really good question whether these uh, the connection between you know ngo ideology and the green indulgences and tech capital whether there's any um you know necessary connection between the two um I'm not sure about tech capital specifically, but there is a, a broader point about with globalization and the outsourcing of production beyond our, our the, beyond our view, right? Beyond in Western society, most Western societies, you know, you don't live with industry. You don't you're, you're not working with probably industrial processes, and if you are, they're very clean industrial processes. Um, that uh, you know, unless it's kind of power generation, quite directly, depending on what that is, um, that it allows you to think that we live in a world beyond production, and that is the plank on which green ideology rests. The second one, um, and I've made this point before, is that a lot of green ideology is a reflection of low growth capitalism, um, an ideological reflection of that, rather than some kind of new solution for how to how to deal with the environment as it yeah. happens i'm you know i think there's yeah, a lot I think that's right a lot of very serious um environmental problems and very urgent ones and we have to be more industrialist to deal with them rather than being in some way post-industrial about them um the reason that the green indulgences thing works and captivates a lot of minds is that it is a way of dealing with a society which has become static in that sense kind of feudal in a way um and of restricting of, of effectively having a semi-malthusian approach to um the questions of production and population of um limiting maybe not limiting um, the number of human beings but certainly of limiting uh you know the consumption of human beings um as a way of dealing with this because there's no productive solution um envisaged whatsoever so not so much, I don't think, a necessary connection between NGO, green indulgences and tech, but with um, the whole structure of production today in the West. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think insofar as kind of, um, you know, selling, uh, you know, kind of a, an economy which is based on, I don't know, like, more, you know, commodifying memes and um, OnlyFans accounts and, you know, advertising revenue for search engines and whatever. In that kind of an economy with kind of historically low levels of productivity and deindustrialization, yeah, you know, kind of the ideology for that will be will be environmentalism. I, I guess OnlyFans point, accounts is the new feudalism of coming rather than the coming of new feudalism. Ah, uh, Jesus Christ. On the <laughs> second question. I'm done no, with them. That's I mean, it. That's he, all I got. He... Look, he he really had 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 been thinking about that in in the back of his mind the whole episode, and you know you're, yeah, he landed you're jealous it. That he got there first, George. No, I'm but, I'm really not 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 yeah. that particular one. But I appreciate the craft and the effort. Um, the on the second point about environment, you know, the point about the fact that uh, we're seeing now kind of resource shortages. I think it's a that's a misreading of the situation. I mean, we're seeing 
you know, we're seeing kind of a spike in food prices as a result of contingent choices rather than absolute kind of um, absolute constraints to production. I mean, there's a grain, you know, a grain shortage because the deal um, between Russia and Ukraine for exporting in the middle of a war from the Black Sea has fallen apart, um, you know, and then, you know, so there's all the problems. But that's a contingent thing. It's not because there's an absolute limit to um, production and in agricultural productivity continues to improve. Um, and similarly with energy, right? I mean, you know, the reason we're having energy problems is because uh, we've imposed sanctions on Russia and Russia has retaliated by withdrawing energy provision for Western Europe. Um, so again, it's not about a lack of resources or are reaching some kind of absolute frontier in human technological ingenuity, but contingent political choices. Yeah, very good. Um, no, I think the the just to to go back to the question, I think the the phrase that Kotkin uses, green indulgences, is a is a really good one. And that this is, you know, what's the what's the function of an indulgence? It allows you to uh, continue doing something because you buy off the guilt of doing it. So there is a um, there is a similar sort of uh, process at work here. But just a final or a, a penultimate question. Um, so Jody Dean's review of um, Kotkin. Uh, I just wanted to bring this up. So she says, um, and we'll link to this in the in the show notes, um, for conservatives like Kotkin, the neo-feudal hypothesis helps them identify what they want to defend, carbon capitalism and the American way of life, and against whom they need to fight. That segment of the capitalist, capitalist elite that is enriching itself at the expense of the middle class, namely green high-tech entrepreneurs and their allies in finance. Neo-feudalism is part of a diagnosis aiming to enlist working class support for a particular section of the capitalist class, namely fossil fuels, real estate and big agriculture. Do we agree? Uh, I, look, I, I think there, there's no, something Jody Dean's politics that she's hinting at, which I disagree with, but which says blatantly right there. So no subtext. Yes, I agree. I think it is trying to enlist the working class uh, in support for um, what the sections of capital that Kotkin um, is more favorable to, um, things like you know fossil fuel uh, production and big agriculture, because he sees them as being productive, really productive, unlike tech, which is um, just trades in, in in frivolities and social control. Um, however true that might be, I think they're both contradictory. They both have you know two sides, um, and I I am not taking sides with one section of capital against another. Um, I, I'm not particularly interested in that. You're and, trying not to, but you might be. Wh well, what side am I taking? I, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm not in. You know, I, I certainly am no fan of tech capital. So, um, and I, and actually, I, I would tend to be more sympathetic towards things that actually produce stuff, right? Stuff that we need. Um, but I try not to. Maybe get, you're a spokesman by... for the the anti Bolsonaro capitalist elite in Brazil. No, I just no, not especially the cap, not in terms of the cap fractions of capital. No, more just in terms of democracy. Something that I believe you're a fan of as well. Um, now, I, with Jody Dean's point, I think that her targeting of carbon capitalism and the American way of life that is just sneering at 
the working class and middle classes, the working class's desire to achieve and the middle class's desire to retain certain benefits of, of what the 20th century has given, like, for example, being able to have cars and homes and all the rest of it. Yeah, um, and which and America gave money than many, you know, than countless other countries as well. Exactly. And so that's a, a good thing that should be uh, retained. And if she's if it's this is just a kind of lefty argument against suburbs, um, I'm not having it. But I think the, the maybe the deeper point that she's getting at um, about the um, maybe specious or, you know, tangent, tangent tendentious um, division that Kotkin does where he goes, oh, let's get the working class together with these capitalists against these bad middle class types with the good middle class types, etc. Um, I'm not buying, but I'm not buying it because I have a much more traditionally Marxist understanding of things. Yeah, I suppose I'd say then, I mean, in response to Jody Dean's thing, you know, I can't to, I can't somebody who kind of just sneers off about carbon capitalism. I can't take seriously, given the fact that here in the UK and in Western Europe, we're looking at potentially energy rationing um, over the winter for lack of um, not only for kind of uh, exclusion, you know, uh, for trying to carve Russia out of the global economy, but also for sheer lack of investment in infrastructure. And there's no way, you know, like until scores of nuclear power stations are built until we are pumping out literally thousands of graduates who are trained in all the various dynamics that you you know nuclear uh, you know engineering nuclear physics and so on we will need uh, carbon capitalism in order to keep the lights on for the working class people and indeed everybody else that jody dean claims to um you know claims to speak for here so i can't like i say i mean i don't this kind of oh carbon capitalism is the problem um i can't take seriously um so but i'd also flip around so who does jody you know who does jody dean speak for um in terms of the alliance who is she you know which fraction of capital is she seeking to win um you know to win working class support for if indeed she offers any appeal to the working class at all i imagine that kotkin's arguments would probably win you know would probably be more um appealing on a very basic level um and if she's opposed to you know carbon capitalism you know maybe she's making the case for green capitalism in which case all we have is two spoke you know two spokespeople for different wings of capitalism and I mean, yeah. I was only being partially, partly facetious in responding to you, Alex. I mean, the point is, like, you can claim whatever you like, um, or one can claim whatever one likes about oneself. But in a particular kind of political and social context, you can inevitably end up kind of, um, you know, expressing the interests of a particular group without being, you know, without being a dishonest or bad faith actor either. So partial agreements... Uh, just to summarize, partial agreement, partial disagreement, and not a lot of support for the parenthetical statement around carbon capitalism and the American way of life. So just to tie all this up then, um, reading this book, uh, thinking about it or listening to it, as I, I, as I did as well, um, has this convinced the two of you to be anti-neo-feudalists? I mean, I, I, the cheeky answer is I was an anti-neo-feudalist avant la lettre, but the, the the more serious answer is that um, no, no, because I, precisely because the temptation or the teasing out what is anti-neo-feudal, um, anti-neo-feudal politics would be precisely to try to reheat bourgeois revolution once again. And I don't think that's the answer, not least because the subject for that will 
relies upon appealing to um, appealing to sections of the elite to do something good, which um, might go against their immediate profit motive, right? So go and build out um, more housing, build out power plants, build out, uh, you know, a, redistribute income towards, uh, you know, downwards, all these kinds of things, um, which, you know, to, to the extent that the bourgeoisie ever did that in some heroic phase, um, we're long past that. And to the extent that the bourgeoisie did that in more recent phases of, of, of modern history in the 20th century, it did it because it was afraid of the working class. It's not afraid of the working class today. And that has to be the starting point of politics today, in my view, not some uh, attempt to reorganize the economy to make capitalism work again. So I think um, I would, uh, I found, I mean, I found the book, uh, I thought it was a fantastic read, um, even though, you know, for all the reasons I've given, I disagree with the kind of fundamental premise. Um, and I was impressed, you know, by, Cod, like I say, Kodkin's willingness to kind of uh, launch a frontal assault on certain um, ideas that you really see criticized, um, you know, in any kind of mainstream discussion, let alone on the left. So, you know, for all that, I I enjoyed it, and I also think, in fact, um, for all the limits of the thesis, um, it has some polemical value. Though I think Kodkin, you know, wants to push it further than polemic, um, but then he also keeps on kind of pulling it back into polemic as well. So he's kind of you know fluctuating on that. But I think also it's um, it does kind of force you, hopefully, and hopefully listeners, you know, hopefully listeners will have found this discussion useful. It does try to force clarity. Um, the kind of, you know, doing a, a comparison between capitalism and feudalism or industrial capitalism and feudalism does um, for some clarity in terms of what the stakes of certain kinds of social struggle are and what society looks like if you extrapolate on certain trends and trajectories. Um, and I think that's, you know, that in itself is, I think, a useful way perhaps to frame debates. And so Kotkin's, uh, you know, I think uh, Kotkin's book is valuable contribution to that extent. Fantastic. I mean, I won't abuse the position of the chair to kind of subtly insert what I what I think, um, but uh, instead uh, point uh, say thanks to the Patreon commenters and messengers, and also all the reading groups that sent us uh, questions. Some really good ones. Hopefully, you were uh, happy with that. We answered those questions, and maybe not that in the way that we did, but you know, let us know about that, of course, and. Shall I pass over to you, Alex, to yeah. um, let us know? Or, or shall I do it? You, you know, can do it. Behind... You can do it. If oh, I, yeah. I have it in front of okay. me. But, you know. Yeah, I have it in front of me as well. I mean, yeah. it's it's just such a it's a beautiful PDF document, the, the Reading Club syllabus um, to look at. So November, um, as I said before, we're, we're going on to AI. And then December, new classes, return of class struggle without class in the precariat. And then it's inhuman power in, in November. So hopefully picking up some of these themes and developing them with. And it's important to add, we will have a bonus episode, which will, I think will be a free episode or maybe to all patrons, um, which will elaborate a little bit on this neo-feudal thesis, because we're going to be discussing Evgeny Morozov's uh, long essay in the New Left Review, looking at neo-feudalism much more in the nuts and bolts of specifically about how tech capital operates, which will feed into this um, very nicely as well. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's tech feudalism all the way till the end of the year. 
And then who knows what 2023 will hold <laughs> and, from a and, tech feudalist point of view. Exactly. No, and actually, we, we don't know, uh, you know, opening the kimono here to listeners, but uh, we don't know exactly what form the Reading Club will take next year. We're still going to uh, plan this. We should have a new survey out to listeners um, soon. But if you do have any suggestions and you think, look, you need to do something on this theme, or you think, hey, it would really be cool, actually, if you just discussed one big book and spent six months discussing that, whatever you might feel about it, uh, we're uh, always happy to hear suggestions um, and to know what you guys would be interested in, what you would most draw from um, if we were to do it. Okay, that's it from us for now. We will be back with another reading club in a month. And of course, all regular episodes will continue over the next uh, over the next weeks. So catch you later. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.